they just never really tell you what like in all like the NCT stuff and all the you know the parenting books I've not I've not yet seen a section that's like entitled are you worried your your child is a terrible person if so here's what to do <laughs> you, you're fortunate because I think if, if he's come to being a three-nager a little bit late then take it as a blessing because mine's a three-nager when basically they have teenage tendencies when they are three years old you now, mean like when they get opinions on stuff <laughs> yeah, and they're just objectionable, and you cannot convince them that you are speaking sense or have any authority whatsoever. So that's that's actually really reassuring. The one thing I've noticed in the last couple of months is that Ed genuinely has no respect, yeah. and it's suddenly become very important to me that he respects me, because he doesn't, to the extent that I'm now considering indulging in pure fear, because that seems to me the quickest way to get respect. And Kate, yeah, Kate is having to keep on the straight and narrow. That doesn't work in the long term either, I can, I can tell oh, you. Oh, is that but right? See, but both, both of mine had those tendencies when they were two. And George still has them now. He's nearly eight. Right. So I, I, hope, I hope this is more of a passing phase. Are, for are you describing parenting or totalitarianism? Either. I, well, do you know, I, I've suddenly no. become a, like a massive advocate of early years boarding schools. <laughs> At least you didn't say corporate punishment. Boarding nursery. <laughs> yeah, but like put them in nursery and then like they can come back at Easter. Given the amount that uh, that we are now paying for nursery, I would imagine that it would only be a, some sort of eight to nine week boarding school term that, that, would, that, that make it value it for money. Yeah, absolutely. Is, but did, you, did you assume that you dropped Bodie off at 8.30 on a Monday morning and picked him up again at 5.30 on a Friday? I'll see you on Friday, son. I Enjoy. hope you learned French just, by the just, time that you get back. Just like a firm handshake. <laughs> Goodbye to a six-month-old. Goodbye. Do take care. They had it right. This is Set Piece Money, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Rory Smith, who didn't catch COVID over Christmas, despite being in a house with somebody who had the whole time. And Stephen Wyeth, who didn't catch COVID over Christmas, despite being in three different countries the whole time although is still going through a somewhat agonizing wait for the results of my returning to the uk pcr test many of the people that i traveled abroad with got their answer that they were negative 10 hours ago yet Ooh. i am still longingly looking at my phone waiting for the time. email to drop so to, to be fair steve from my experience of the fit to fly and fit to return test that is less likely to mean that you're positive and more likely to mean that the company that you've paid a fortune to for your test has just forgotten. Well, I'm hoping. I, I have been reassured that if I was positive, my phone would would be red hot right now. So fingers crossed. Well, they do say that a rising of temperature is the first sign, not the last. Um, the food is? Well, so it's, it's a little bit dated now because obviously we did the, the couple of episodes before Christmas because we all thought we'd be really busy over Christmas, but I was trapped in my house uh, with with one person who had tested positive and one person who hadn't tested positive, but had definitely got it. And all um, my games got it, postponed, so I wasn't as busy over Christmas yeah, as I was exactly. expecting either. Um, but we, so we had to have Christmas Day at home because uh, Ed had tested positive. Everything's fine now. Did you still get your nut, nut roast? No, well, so this is, this, is, um, this is my story, Hugh. Stop trying to... Oh, sorry. Bury the or do the, whatever the opposite of burying the lead is. I uh, I once stole the punchline of a radio host, my friend Justin Morehouse, um, who is a is a comedian, but he's also an excellent radio host. And very very early on in my career, in his, in his radio career as well, I I thought of something funny that he was talking about, and I said it, and he could not have been more angry. At the surprised. idea that I had stolen the punchline, not only from him, a radio host doing a funny link, but also a stand-up comic who didn't usually have people doing that to him. So, Rory, on behalf of my 23-year-old self, I haven't learned and I'm sorry. So, obviously, it was a bit of a blow to have to have Christmas at home. That was just us. It was it was disappointing. We, we'd, we'd, we'd planned to see family and obviously did the responsible thing. Ed, you know, Ed had tested positive, so, so we didn't go out. Um, but it did mean that, that Kate's mum, who had... Who had been planning on hosting cooked for us and brought the food round what which meant that we got to have like a full delicious christmas dinner without having to do any preparation or washing up so in many ways that was kind of the saving grace of christmas that because we were trapped in our house we did get a delivery of food left on the doorstep to be safe um that just just sort of appeared as if by magic it was it was a little bit of a christmas miracle but we didn't get a nut roast and as we unwrapped it i sort of said to kate hang on 
there's there's beef and turkey and that's fine thanks Anne. where's my nut roast and i realized <laughs> that i i missed the nut roast i wasn't expecting that to be something that I, a sentence i ever uttered but uh, yeah it's not po- christmas without a nut roast a point of clarification if you don't mind so no preparation i understand that but you gave back the unwashed items in which oh no we put our plates in the dishwasher all oh, right so the dish the but dishwasher. when when you're i don't know if you know this hugh but when you're cooking food you sometimes have to use implements that are not suitable for the dishwasher because they have kind of non-stick coatings or they're big right. metal pans. I am aware. And you, you, to clean them, you have to do it yourself, like some, some sort of 16th century hovel dweller. And I'm not, and I, I'm not a fan of that. I also have, I don't know if you know this about me, but I have an ideological objection to drying up. <laughs> You're a drip dryer. Well, no, on the grounds that you I just refuse... leave them there. Yeah, uh, leave them on would, the side why... until you, you use them next. Why would I dry them when nature will do that for me? Like, what? I... Literally, what's the point? Do you feel the same after you have cleansed yourself in either a bath or a shower? I'm happy to, if if the option of dry, drip drying myself was available in a practical way, then I would do that rather than use a towel. Um, the football is something like this. What is it with all them Johnny foreigners coming over here and trying to change everything? Uh, you can get in touch with the podcast. That subject is to come. You can get in touch, in touch with the podcast. Setpiecemenu at gmail.com. We start with a couple of seasonal-ish offerings, bearing in mind that they were seasonal at the time, but they're not anymore. Chris Lomax emailed us on Christmas Day, would you believe? Good day, gentlemen. Merry Christmas to you and all the Set Piece Menu family. I just thought you should know, Rory, my mother has bought not one, but two brand new copies of your wonderful book, Mr. Not the Sexy Version. Not only that, but they were bought at full retail price. I therefore apologise to you and your Swiss bank manager for the extraordinary jump in funds. I hope you can find a way to forgive us. I look forward to uh, reading the musings of one of the greatest football writers on the podcast. Thinking it was going to be a slightly wider <laughs> context. Thank you, Mary, uh, from, from Chris Lomax in Bolton. Uh, Chris, for some reason you're not a, not a Buffalo yet. I checked on John Billington's list. Um, so, Chris, Happy New Year! And just for purchasing two, no, just for your mother purchasing two uh, books, you are our newest Buffalo. Rory, that's, you should do an acceptance speech. I should. Yeah, no, I'm delighted. I mean, that's two copies sold in 2021. That's great. That's <laughs> ideal. <laughs> Ivan Gadjev has this email. He says, Happy New Year, a little bit more contemporaneously. To round out the end of the year best something of the year lists, here is my best quote of the year in 2021. It comes from Rory in episode 248, Traditions or Anachronisms. And in my humble opinion, explains most of modern art, sport, business, and the world as a whole. I mean, basically, it's the meaning of life. The quote, for a long time, the world didn't give a about what teenagers thought and that was kind of the point mr rory smith put that on a t-shirt and buy it for your dad love you all ivan i, I there's a there's an account on twitter that i follow um that i can't pronounce it it's it, it and so i won't cite it because i can't pronounce it's 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 handle but it, he's been talking a lot recently about the um the you know those pictures of like famous thinkers with quotes attached to them that people put up in 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 the absence of their own intelligence um <laughs> The, but the quotes are always wrong. So it's always, you know, it's something like Huxley or Orwell is meant to have said, but ha- hasn't actually yes. said. And it's always applied to like not wearing a mask in a shop. Um, I saw a picture, one the other day that I really liked, which was, and I'm hoping that our audience will get this, which was a picture of Aldous Huxley um, with a quote attached, which said, 2021 has been a difficult year, despite my 47 goals across all competitions. <laughs> Well, yes, if I get it, then most people will. Uh, Trey Causey has this. Dear Connor, Kendall, Roman and Shiv, one of many recent emails uh, making reference to uh, four, often different uh, four characters. uh, Don't have Sky Atlantic, really want to watch Succession. I recommend it. Heart, wholeheartedly. Don't have Sky Atlantic, so can't. Midway through the first series, so no spoilers, Hugh, who who almost certainly has finished it. Do you think you can buy it on DVD? I imagine that you can, as indeed you can most things, Rory. Get with it. It's 1998. Do you think you can buy a DVD player? (laughs) Do you not not even have a DVD player now? I've got a defunct PlayStation. There we go. That'll work. 
Dear Connor, Kendall, Roman and Shiv, I'm writing with a somewhat naive but hopeful request in the spirit of the holidays, goodwill towards all, etc. I love the pod, have written before that it's gotten me through some tough times and continues to always find room for you in my podcast schedule. This request is specifically aimed at Rory. Rory, you've had two good ones, now what here's is... the rub. Oh. Balance, Rory, balance. I recognise that nuance, deep football knowledge, dry wit, and yes, offhand withering criticism are all part of Rory's signature brand of commentary. But I humbly propose that from time to time, the ostensibly humorous disparagement and dismissal of things crosses the line. Some recent and not so recent examples include Rory's well-established hatred of rugby union, the NFL, Formula One, and long-form articles in The Athletic. But most personal to me... (laughs) I don't hate the NFL. Don't hate the NFL. Okay, we'll strike that off the list, Trey. Uh, But most personal to me, says Trey, was when, as part of the Sprotty episodes, Rory made an offhand comment that, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter if Spurs have to play three postponed matches in a week to determine if they finish ninth or seventh, because, he said, who cares? Well, obviously, Spurs supporters do. No one wants to be back in the Europa Conference League, so clearly ninth is preferable. Uh, hmm. That's Trey Corsi, who uh, describes himself at the end as an entirely too earnest and thin-skinned American. That is legitimate. The one thing I would say is that the, the, the grander stream of things to which I was referring to was the massive and deadly pandemic. So I think <laughs> in that context, I was correct to say that whether Spurs finish... I don't actually think Spurs will finish ninth or seventh. I think they'll finish fourth or fifth. So are you suggesting in the future we'll see a, a meme that is... Um a sepia shot of your face with that quote taken out of context on Steve, social media Steve, streams. If, if I'm honest, if in like a hundred years time, there is a picture of my face on the internet, I'll A, be delighted, dead, but delighted. And B, if the, if that, the quote that, that is next to that is, we, nobody should give a shit about what teenagers think because teenagers are idiots. I would be absolutely, that is the, Oh, that is, said that, that is that is a slight misquote. So you wouldn't want a slight misquote given. No, what it, has just slight, it has to be a slight. Yeah. Oh, it has to be a slight. misquote. Right. Yeah. If, it, if it was if it was accurate, then a lifetime's ambition would have gone unfulfilled. It clearly. would be even better to be honest if it was a picture, a sepia-toned picture of me with the quote, "2021 has not been an easy year, despite my 47 goals scored <laughs> across all competitions." That would be even better. Charles Siegel writes from Dallas. Hello, I've just finished listening to the first Sprumrotti podcast, the one about the good things that happened in 2021. I enjoyed it immensely, as always. Since there was some talk about how the 1990 World Cup Argentina-Cameroon match might have been some young English people's first real exposure to football or the catalyst that got them interested for good, I thought I'd mention the moment that made me a soccer fan. Growing up in Texas in the 60s, 70s and 80s was much different than it is now. Soccer was much less popular and most kids didn't play it growing up. There were no MLS teams here, no soccer on TV all the time, etc. So like most boys growing up in that time and place. In 1994, of course, the tournament was in the US. One day I was walking through the Dallas airport coming home from a business trip when I passed a restaurant and saw a lot of people gathered around the TV, all looking up at it. I paused to see what they were watching and saw that there was a pause in the action. This is what happened next. And then he sent us a YouTube link of uh, Thomas Brolin's goal against Romania for Sweden. To this day, it is still one of the best free kicks I've ever seen, and the whole choreography of it was enthralling. From then on, I was hooked. I watched the rest of the tournament avidly. I still can't get over the fact that I missed several World Cup matches played here in Dallas, including, if memory serves, Germany bailing holding off South Korea and Brazil coming from behind against Holland. Since then, it's been a big part of my life. On luckily timed business trips, I've seen Brazil draw with Uruguay in a World Cup qualifier in the Maracanã and seen Argentina beat Chile in a qualifier at the Monumental. Messi scored the only goal with a penalty. I saw Portugal beat Spain 1-0 in Lisbon at the 2004 Euro. I did that for you, Stephen. He actually has an S on that. I saw the Thierry Henry handball in Paris. As for clubs, I ended up becoming a Spurs fan. For some reason, when I watched, started watching Premier League matches, I liked Les Ferdinand a lot. And that was his last major club. Does he care? I wonder whether they finish 7th or ninth. And I also saw a match at the old White Hart Lane. I've seen Millwall at the old Den on Cold Blow Lane. And club matches in Norway and Sweden. To bring it back full circle to the podcast, a few years ago, we went to <laughs> London in August on a family vacation and saw Brentford. It was a lot of fun going to that small ground, Griffin Park. That day, the club honoured some long-time fan who I think had just turned 100 or something like that. <laughs> Didn't pay enough attention to that part. Eh? And hadn't missed a match in several decades. Needless to say, we were both happy when they made it to the Premier League this year. Anyway, I thought I'd share all this. I enjoyed the show greatly. and we look forward to listening in the new year. Best of all, that is from Charles Siegel. Lovely. Lovely. Oh, I'm, glad that, I'm glad we could provide a catalyst for at least one person's trip down memory lane. And finally, Rich Reardon heard the um, appeal that we made for a higher standard of poetry from listeners, particularly in the... This this is not going to end well. People should not... We should not be encouraging... 
abort, abort. Or, or you can add, in fact, you can take NFL, NFL off the list of things I hate and add poetry to it. <laughs> but the worst type of poetry is amateur poetry. <laughs> with, with that in mind, oh, no. Rich, a buffalo has sent this in. Dear Tony Gordon, Alistair and Prezza, uh, well, you asked for it. More fool you. I have tried to capture the soul of British football, fan culture and my own experiences of fandom while respecting the best traditions of SPM and all that you fine men have brought us, enriching the lives of your grateful listeners. Here are my humble haiku offerings. Plural, there are three. Oh, no. Firstly, Sean's flat-roofed boozer is a place of light and joy. Drink up, you arseholes. He's <laughs> set a fairly high standard. Next, poor Stephen despairs. You don't go to VAR. Good luck with that, pal. Um, and finally, he's smiling. He's rich. He's, he's I am. Playing. I am. I'm smiling. I'm nodding my head. I'm audio. I'm, I'm, audio I'm flattered to have been the inspiration for a, a haiku of sorts. Uh, of sorts, no, literally. And finally, a lifetime of hope. My dreams are brimful of fear. For f- sake, Carlisle. Um, and that is from Rich, who's a buffalo still in Bootle, and he says he's very worried about Carlisle. Uh, correspondence and poetry of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. I've just written a haiku. <laughs> All right, okay. Just so now. What, apparently, to, to amateur I, poetry I, is now fine. Haikus are easy. Uh, he says, I'm pretty sure I've got it wrong. But anyway, it's, it encapsulates all modern football. So here we go. Refs are <laughs> Please sign many more players. Bias journo prick. There you I go. Mean, if you Haikus, say, everybody. Ref is, I think you find. No, refs. Refs. Ref that's only four. Ref. One. Yeah, ref is a. Okay, yeah, okay. There you know. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was called workshopping. Uh, now, we are once again indebted not only to someone else, but also someone else for pointing out what that first someone else said. That second someone else is the listener Daniel Baines, who made us aware of a tweet involving Thomas Tuchel making his views known for the umpteenth time about the congested Christmas schedule and the silly parochial three-sub rule. Daniel said this. Question for Pod. Is this foreign managers raiding English football, breaking traditions to get what suits them, or are Tuchel, Pep and Klopp etc right? Is it time that we catch up with the rest of Europe and rethink the schedule? They've got to learn to cope with it, in my opinion. A pithy answer at the end there to his own question, and one that we wish we could emulate, but instead let's take ages to not get as far as Daniel does in 10 words. The Premier League likes attracting the best managerial talent, but what if that talent wants to change the Premier League itself? So I would say, I'm going to do, do a very rare thing here and cite another sport. Oh, is it, is it one of the ones that we have listed already? That you no, hate? no, no. It's a sport that I like, despite its massive oh, so and widespread not... history of drug abuse. Uh, <laughs> so you're, it not, is... not like, you're not suggesting like a, a Formula One style, play 37 games and then just ahead of the 38th, move everybody on to equal points and see what happens. No, but I, have, I do think, fully enough, I do think there is a, I'm not biting on that, Stephen, I'm, I'm better than that. Um, there is a interesting parallel between Manchester City, the football club, and Michael Schumacher the racing driver uh, that I w- won't go into now. Uh, but no, it's cycling, professional cycling. Uh, the, the Tour de France, which is a famous bike race, uh, for those who don't where, know. Where, where's that held, Rory? It's held every year in and around nearby European nation, France. And the, the, tour, the tour over the last few years has got, it might change the last couple, but there was a period in the tour where they decided that what people like are the dramatic mountain stages. So they put loads and loads and loads of dramatic mountain stages in. And it used to be the case that in the tour, you'd maybe, the, the really big stages, you'd maybe climb two of the Alps. And then all of a sudden, they were regularly climbing three. You'd do like Von Two and two other massive calls. <laughs> I can't, I, I, I don't want to get the geography wrong, but one, one of them was always, they seem to go up Mont, Mont Von Two about 14 times a year. But they do, they do these huge, these three calls that would all, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago would have been the sort of the centerpiece of a, of a stage and they do three of them in a day and it was very clearly an attempt by the race organizers to to kind of l- just layer on the drama and the physical challenge and effectively break the cyclists that's what they were trying to do and there was a, after a while a degree of uproar about it and i think they have since sort of rolled back a little bit and said okay yeah we're not going to make uh, it quite so hard because ultimately in the context of cycling if you make cyclists climb loads of mountains just to get through the day, then you are probably incentivizing doping. 
that I think it was part of what they realized that they were almost asking too much of the cyclists. Yeah. I think there was a parallel with English football over the course of the winter that there is an element of it's this period that we've just come through that that everybody thinks of as being kind of the centerpiece of English football and so there is a there is a there's an incentive to to the competition organizer the Premier League to, to do it as much as possible to almost make it as hard as it can be now we obviously there is a there is tradition here I, I looked this up actually a little, a little while ago um, in like 1982, as recently as that, as recently as the year I was born, teams played on the 26th Boxing Day and then on the 27th. Yep. So this is something that has happened, been going on for a long time. It used to be the case that they'd play the same teams in two days. You'd play the home game and then the away game. Um, but I think what the Premier League have done recently is in in a desperate attempt to to make sure that as many days as possible over Christmas are filled with football. They spread the games out. So there's only three games in the course of eight days, which is no, which is no more than normal for most teams, um, in no, no more than normal in terms of the Christmas schedule. But because they want to put as many of them on TV as possible, you're, it wasn't the case this year, say, when Boxing Day was a Sunday. It would have been really easy for everybody to play Sunday, everybody to play Wednesday, and then everybody to play the following Sunday, which mm -hmm. was not New Year's Day, but the second. Saturday, yeah. That would have made perfect sense, and I think the managers probably wouldn't have wouldn't have wouldn't have objected to that. It was it was what Klopp and Tuchel would know from Germany as an English Woche, an English yes. week. They, th th that concept does exist abroad. Although that I, term is used uh, in a derogatory fashion. Yeah, because I think there is a recognition that that it's asking a lot of players, and yeah. and in the Bundesliga you don't really need them. They've only got thirty four games. You don't need to cram them all in to, they, to one week. But they, and they, I think they, they say in, they say an English week. As a, we're doing something really daft here, lads. Yeah, aren't we three idiots? Games in <laughs> um, the, so I think that the, the danger is that the Premier League has fallen into the same tra trap as the people who organised the tour, which is saying, this is a thing that people like, let's give them more of it. Mm. Um, that comes with consequences. And in the case of the tour, it was that the cyclists were in fairly significant physical danger. You were asking too much of the human body and were being incentivized to cheat. And in the Premier League, the... The, the, there are two consequences that I would say that I think aren't discussed enough. And this is a Rory Smith soliloquy. I will stop talking in a minute. Well, do, do one and then come back to the second. <laughs> no, the thing is, when I do that, I forget the yes, second. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Every time. And that's annoying. It's annoying for me and my brain. So, hang on. Let me... I might write... Hang on. I've got a pencil here. Let me just <laughs> write what, it down. My, my, my seven-year-old George does this quite a lot. He, he starts a point and forgets the end of it. And I, I always say, George, you've done a Rory. And I don't mean your big brother. You, you better not. I'm not having a Rory being, being synonymous with that. I want a Rory to be insulting teenagers in perpetuity. <laughs> the disliking stuff. I'd be happier with that. No, the first one is that I think, it, and it, I, I'm really surprised that, that the smaller teams haven't cottoned onto this. It massively favours the big clubs. Mm -hmm. Playing all those games at once hugely yeah. skews the league in favour of the big clubs. That I, don't, I, I genuinely don't understand how, and Sean Dyche is not someone that I, I think there's probably a perception that I'm critical of Sean Dyche. I'm not criticising Sean Dyche. Came out and uh, in the aftermath of Klopp, Klopp saying it was stupid to play so many games in such a short space of time and kind of said, you know, it almost it kind of levels the playing field a bit. It it really no. doesn't. I don't... I, Sean Dyche is a really smart man. Mm. I don't understand how he can think that. I was really surprised to hear that, yeah. Just all that it does is it says, right, you're all playing three games in seven days, seven, eight days. So you will all suffer the same physical load. And to be honest, the smaller teams will suffer greater physical load. So they're doing more running around. They don't have the ball. And yes, your players will diminish. And even if they diminish, you take out things like sports science, that even if they d diminish proportionally, your smaller squad is going to be more stretched than their massive squad. I'm amazed that the smaller clubs haven't worked out that if you want to kind of make things a little bit more even, maybe, in fact, well, to, be, to be honest, maybe you get rid of one of the games over the Christmas week. That's the easy thing to do. Or if you don't make anybody play, maybe you just make the big teams play. Maybe you say that that that, that middle fixture is for Liverpool to play Man City and Chelsea to play Arsenal and whatever. That you would get, actually level the playing field. That would genuinely level the playing field. Then they all go back mm. on the following weekend and they have to play Burnley away and Norwich away and whatever. But it's the big managers who are complaining about that happening well, so, in the first place. So, so that brings me on to the second it, thing it's, that's it's good missed. in principle, but the practice is, is that they would hate it. This is the second, but this this is the second thing that's, that's missed, and it's something we don't talk about enough, I think. 
and whenever players bring it up, they're accused of whinging. Mm. And they're often accused of whinging, you know, that, that kind of, that kind of thing that, like abu that abuse is hereditary almost, that you kind of, if you, if you go through something horrific, you have this belief that other people should go through it, which is the, you know, the essence of the entire British public school system, that you believe that you should, just as you, you know, it was, you did it, you got whipped or whatever to run around a field at some posh boarding school where I'm going to send my son because um, he's been a pain in the ass. Next week. The, um, then you, <laughs> you need that. You, you convince yourself that that is beneficial to other mm. people to endure that. So yeah. lots of former players will tell you that it's part of English football, you've got to do it. It's one of the great, you know, great time of year to play, blah, 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 blah. Didn't Jermaine um, Genus just write, write a piece this week about that, saying that when, when December came around, I just knew that I was going to have a tough month and I steeled myself yeah, yeah. and get myself up for Pretty it. Pretty and... sure Jermaine Genus had a habit of getting booked on Boxing <laughs> Days so he didn't have to yeah. play the next game. I will, I will check sure to see if he mentions that in the piece. Um, also, they got Christmas off, but the, 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 there is definitely a tendency to say, well, we went through it, so you have to too. Mm. But the, what we don't talk about enough is that players are employed and lavishly rewarded to be at their best and to perform to their best. And yet the way that the Christmas schedule is built precludes them from doing that. So if you look at the Chelsea-Liverpool game, uh, which was a few days before we recorded this episode, it was a brilliant game of football. Absolutely superb, particularly given that they were both missing a lot of players because of COVID and injuries, which, you know, it can happen at any time of year. Um, but the reason it was a brilliant game was because there were loads of mistakes and for the second half, they were both quite tired. That that It was a brilliant game and the flaws made it a brilliant game and that's something we talked about a lot. Yeah. But to an extent, that was proof. It, it was it was held up as proof. Of, you know, they're, they're all saying the players are tired, but look at how good this game has been. That's not what that game meant. That game was brilliant because the players are tired. It was brilliant in a, in, in a way that a heavyweight boxing fight that goes 12 rounds is brilliant by comparison to one that's ended in the second round by the superior opponent yeah. knocking out the other. It's a slugfest. It just becomes yeah. a total slugfest. And th th there is a degree of technical merit to it and it's an impressive human achievement to endure but it's not it's not what it could be because they're but both knackered yes it's the, the lack of control because control can be glorious but it can it can also be stifling but this when you take the control away because of all these reasons that we've mentioned then you've got something which is visceral i think the bit of the bit that kind of gets lost a little bit is that the stuff riding on the players not being able to perform to their best that managers can get sacked because their players don't perform to the best. So it's not, I mean, it won't happen, but it's not inconceivable that Thomas Tuchel could lose his job because Chelsea can't, you know, haven't been able to sustain a title challenge, at least partly because, you know, maybe if they'd, if they'd had more rest before that Liverpool game, if they'd beaten Liverpool, maybe that would be the difference between finishing second and third. Yeah. And that might be the difference between Tuchel losing his job and keeping his job. It might be that, I don't know, Jordan Henderson wasn't brilliant in that game. And it might be that that is is the sort of performance that makes Liverpool think, well, maybe we have to replace him a little bit sooner than we thought. Yeah. That, you know, that there is stuff riding on this. The players have to be at their best. The players feel they have to be at their best to to do what is expected of them. On the, in the most basic level, to avoid getting slagged off loads on social media. Yeah, fan, fans want to watch their teams being the best that their team can be. There's no point and in sitting... And if they're not, they get furious. If they, they get furious or they, they just feel like it's a worthless exercise and they won't become disengaged because they're fans. But in in principle, there, there might be a few who just say, well, I didn't really enjoy that. That was I, I thought I was a Chelsea fan and that, that wasn't any good. And so, I, yes, I'm going to express my views in a negative way, which so, then filters through up. Yeah, exactly. And it, it exposes the players to abuse and all that stuff, which is all negative. So... I don't think it's that counterintuitive that it's the managers of the big teams who complain about it because it's the big teams who have the most riding on be, on being able to be at their best. And so I find it odd that the smaller teams think it plays in their favour because it doesn't at yeah. all. But I, I don't find it odd that the bigger teams are more occupied by it because there is a point at which the, those players know that, that yeah, if, they, if they're not at their best, if they lose form or fitness, and bear in mind there's a lag as well. So yeah. how tired they are over Christmas will affect how they perform in January and maybe February or whatever. It, it all, it's, there's a compound effect. That can have actual consequences for, for their next, for, for how their career plays out. And it, it just strikes me as being, I get why people like the tradition. I get why people think seeing them go up these mountains is brilliant. I don't get why we're not able to have a, a more 
mature conversation about whether there might be a better way of staging it, not least because if you look at January, it's actually quite empty. Are you saying that they are unable to see the wood for the trees? I I would say in a very un-British way, it's not something you'd expect of this country at all, there is a determination to be hidebound by tradition despite all available logic. (laughs) You're absolutely right. That, for me, just just as a British person, feels very alien. So unusual. And And it would be so easily solved by getting rid of the middle game. Have your Boxing Day tradition, have your New Year's Day tradition, spread the Boxing Day games out, play six of them on Boxing Day, play a couple on the 27th, likewise the 28th. You know, there's a busy run of televised English football available for the global market at a time when other elite European leagues aren't playing, which is part of the reason that the Premier League likes the tradition. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I I, I spoke to um, Abdoulaye Dakouri at Everton very recently, and I, I asked him about Christmas, having been someone who was in what, fourth, fifth season now in English football. Had he got used to it? Did he think we were crazy? And he spoke very positively about it, which I was, I was quite surprised about. And one of the reasons he spoke positively about it was because it was an opportunity for his friends and family at home to see him in action because there was no, no conflict. And, it, and it's... Hang on a minute. They wouldn't. They wouldn't pick him over other games. <laughs> Who knows? I'm, Who knows? I'm not was, watching you just twat a plane at home. Yes, exactly. Maybe, maybe they have a loyalty that, uh, that even he can't. Uh, he can't supplant. I suppose it's so, more feasible that Everton might not be on TV that much. Yes, as, as far as a selection yeah. rather than it, yeah being a blanket and then just choosing one of them. But, but I have. I, I've. It, it didn't. It wasn't dissimilar to other conversations I've had over the years with Premier League players at around about this time of year, they, the general answer you get to those sorts of questions is, no, I'd rather play than train, so playing every three days suits me. That's why you end up with it being the elite level managers who are, who are speaking out against it. And, and whilst I'm inclined to agree with them that it is absurd, I, I don't believe that we necessarily need a winter break in the way that other leagues have it because, you know, I like the tradition of Boxing Day and and New Year's football, but I do think you could just make life a little bit more straightforward. But what was interesting about it coming to the... And and clearly COVID was a massive reason that it came to the fore this winter, that it was such a hot topic. But what was slightly extraordinary about so many of the elite coaches jumping on it this time around is that they actually all had a week to prepare for the Boxing Day game. in, In terms of the Premier League, there were no Premier League games for a week prior to mm. Boxing Day, mm. whereas on, in, in other occasions, it could be that the Boxing Day game comes round three days after the last round of fixtures, and then they yeah. play again on the 28th. Then they and and we, we've seen it in very recent times where there's then been that disparity, hasn't there, between some teams playing three times in five or six days and others playing three times in eight days because of where their, their games have fallen for television. And, and that brought about a greater sense of imbalance and unfairness because... The, the compa- because this, the schedule was so clearly uncomparable, whereas actually it's been fairly similar over this Christmas for, for most of the teams, even if some of the big sides yeah, have to play each this other. Yeah, this hasn't been a particularly intensive Christmas. And I think that the other thing we, we maybe have to factor in when we, when we talk about the, the elite managers complaining, they're, they're getting asked about it. I don't know to what extent, I'm not in the press conferences, so I don't know, but I don't know to what extent like Rangnick and Tuchel and Klopp are bringing it up. I don't think Ralph Rangnick's like sitting down and saying, right, lads, before you ask me anything, mm. can we cancel the League Cup? Like, I, I'm not convinced yeah, but they, that's... They know, they know it's going to come. And particularly with Klopp, one, one, of, one of the reasons that Klopp was particularly asked, I know he's, he's spoken about it before, is because his, his player, Jordan Henderson, was the one, and you, you said, Rory, that he didn't play very well in the game at Chelsea, but he was the one that talked about player welfare not, not being taken seriously. And he said about that, yes, because of COVID kind of decimating squads and therefore putting extra play, uh, pressure on those players who were available uh, and having those games continue in spite of some clubs having some player unavailability, but not necessarily meeting the threshold of 13, isn't it? Um, in the Premier League, which which leads me to, to, to this point. Abdouli Dekori might have said that, and, and I do not, for one moment, not take him at his word. But do they say that because they know it's tradi- a tradition and they should be supportive of a tradition that takes place? Do they actually have the opinion, really, of Jordan Henderson, which is to say, this is ridiculous, stop asking us to do this. And whether that led to Klopp's particularly fervent views or not, that there is an element of what, of these 
these managers who are elite, yes, but foreign, perhaps, and this is the not necessarily my point of view, but the point of view of others, that says that it is they that don't want to uphold a tradition that everybody else has played lip service to, yeah, even yeah. to this very day. Yeah, the, the chances are the players, as, as, you know, as you say, they're prepared for the question. They've been briefed, you know, to say the right thing. I believe that the players believe that a lot of players believe they prefer to play than train. But that isn't this sounds stupid, but that's not it's not necessarily the players who we should be listening yeah. to in that sense. Because, the, you know, if you, if you ask any player, they'll say, oh, you know, I could play every day. But they should. That doesn't mean they should. Yeah. That they, they their willingness to do it and their spirit and their enthusiasm is hugely admirable. But to some extent, like I'd like to eat a Terry's chocolate orange every day. But but you need to play a game of football every day to just get I should, balance that. But I should probably stop. But worry, men in their twenties, whatever they do for a living, are, are great at making the right decision both in terms of the short and long term. So I think yeah, that's, men, yeah. men in their 20s are famously yeah, extremely yeah. wise. Yeah, no, so I think the, that but that's it's... the point, that perhaps those managers are having to speak yeah. out so much about it because there is not only this lip service, but this, yeah. this lack of understanding of, of their own bodies from the players, and they are attempting to mitigate that by saying, no, actually, we need you to, to calm down and take I think a break. They're trying to make it okay. The players, the players I think, it partly will feel that they don't want to show the weakness of saying, no, do you know what, I find it really tiring and kind of annoying. Um, but also, yeah, I think there's an element of the players don't necessarily realise that, yes, you can play once every two or three days. Of course you can. They're incredibly fit. But you can't play to your absolute best once every two or three days. Now, the next element that comes into this is that if you want to uphold the tradition and have the Premier League clubs playing three times in eight days, fine. But then surely a way of placating those who believe that tradition should be dispensed with is to actually look at the schedule around that. Because Chelsea played 10 times in 33 days between the 1st of December and the game against Liverpool on the 2nd of January. So it's not the, the games that they play over Christmas and New Year in isolation, which is necessarily the problem but that it comes at the end of a crazy sequence in which you always have the, the conclusion to the group stages of the Champions League, you have the quarterfinals of the League Cup, there's very often in December a midweek Premier League game. So it's congested. Yes, this, this year they had the week leading up to Boxing Day without a Premier League game, but it's, it, it's, it's how it comes after an intensive run which seems so crazy you know to use the, the tour de france analogy you know it, it's like them doing three stages in the pyrenees and then going straight to the alps mm -hmm. it's not necessarily the alps bit that breaks them it's the fact that they had to do three stages in the pyrenees prior to that why not think well hang on how if we want this we want to uphold this tradition we want to maintain the exposure that english football gets from playing regularly during that that festive period Let's ease the running, if we can, to yeah. give teams an opportunity to prepare for it, to, to make sure that the players are at their optimum to deliver the highest level performances in what you know, often does throw up big, big title deciding games because that's what they want in those windows. So, so what about then this compromise? If you, if you want to keep it because of the reasons of tradition and, and because of the understandable lucrative time that it is for the Premier League because there are so many leagues taking some time off, what about the idea that, that, that you do have to either permanently or for this period on its own, which is, I think, suggested at least by Pep Guardiola, maybe by more people as well, that you have five subs for Boxing Day that game and then the new year game to try and overcome this issues it is an audio medium you won't see Stephen shaking his head like the traditionalist that he is hmm. but if there if there is to be and this is this this has always been a, a subject that has been kiboshed by those smaller clubs saying no it would favor the big clubs well, but i remember ralph hasselhill saying no it, it would favor the small clubs more for exactly the reason that rory was suggesting earlier they've got a smaller squad they need to marshal their resources the, the higher end the higher quality end of their squad more than the big clubs who have a wider 
section of better players from which to choose. So actually the five subs thing helps the small clubs more than it helps the, the, the bigger clubs. So we're in exactly the same situation. It's the bigger clubs who are asking for it. The, the, yeah. Some of the smaller clubs saying no, when in fact, actually it should be the other way around. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't, believe, you know, don't believe that Ralph Hasenhutl is correct about that. He's entitled to his opinion and, and he may well see the benefits for his team in particular as it currently is from having that option available to him. But you can't have a cutaway of Manchester City's bench and go, crikey, look at the strength in depth there. That bench cost £250 million to put together and say that Southampton would benefit more than Manchester City to being able to use more of their strength in depth. But it's not That's using like... the... But it's not... It's a different argument. It's not about using the strength in depth. It's about protecting the smaller or the more shallow depth that they have at the top of their squad. He wanted... Take James Ward-Prowse as an example. I know he doesn't miss a game ever, but he he wanted to be able to protect those fewer mm-hmm. players of greater value to his squad by giving them a yeah. chance to rest by taking more of them off more often. Right, I, I absolutely understand that. But you take James Ward-Prowse out of the Southampton team, whoever replaces him, they are significantly weakened by that. So yes, he is protecting... Francis Benali. <laughs> he is protecting James Ward-Prowse, but exposing... Uber marathon runner Francis Benali, as he may well be now that he's in his what late forties, early fifties. I'm not quite sure the Premier League he's going to be up to the Premier League pace. Whereas for Pep Guardiola, he can take a player out of his team and replace him with somebody of much similar capabilities. And therefore, whilst I see the logic in that I want to protect my players from from overexposure, in the grand scheme of things. The, the smaller clubs aren't going to benefit more than the bigger clubs because of the depth of their, their resources. Steve, Steve is right, but he is also fundamentally wrong. Yes, because you can, you can have this. It's the same, the same rule and you don't have to support it for the same reasons. You can get to the, to the destination no, 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 it's not that. A, it's a, a, a number he's of different right, routes. He's right that it doesn't benefit the smaller clubs more, but nor does it benefit the bigger clubs more. It, it, it's literally the same rule for everybody. So... Yeah, Man City have more strength on their bench than Southampton. But the drop-off, City aren't a brilliant... City are slightly exceptional, as we said. The drop-off at Chelsea, say, is probably proportionate to the drop-off at Southampton. So if Chelsea take off Mateo Kovacic and put on Ross Barkley, yeah, Ross Barkley would start for Southampton. But that's still a drop-off in quality, which is parallel just about... And it probably all... That is one of those things that probably does even itself out. to Southampton taking Ward-Prowse off and bringing on... Oriol Romeo, whoever it might be, do, do it in the, FIFA. Do, do it in FIFA terms. So, so, so Kovacic is an 82 strength player. You bring on Ross Bartley, who's a 68 strength player. It's the, the 12, 12 is the difference. You bring on bring off James Ward Prowse, who's a 75 player, and bring on Francis Benali, who's maybe a maybe 63. a 15, <laughs> the, the, the same the same age that he is of his FIFA ranking. Whatever the logic, the problem with five subs is that it's been politicised. Yeah. So that. The smaller clubs voted it down, not because they thought it would be worse for them if it was introduced, but just because they didn't want the big clubs yes, to be to able stop, to have that yeah. privilege. Yeah. What that, that falls into, to me, and I respect Steve's opinion completely, to me that falls into the same category as Sean Dyche genuinely, sincerely believing that cramming all those games together in some way disadvantages the big clubs more than it does the small clubs. It doesn't. It's a, it's a misunderstanding of the nature of, of what's happening. So... That I, I don't agree with Guardiola that you should be able to have five substitutes for three games, and that's stupid. I think it would make far more sense just to have five substitutes. But to be honest, I think that they are all in the, they are all in, all in the same boat either way. They all suffer just as much. The difference is that the the big clubs have got the resources to 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 weather it in the way that the small clubs don't. Now this doesn't happen anymore, but it is feasible that if you had, say, Aston Villa, or I tell you, West Ham's a better example. West Ham going for the title on the 20th of December, that the, the, the way the calendar is structured now, three subs or five subs, is basically designed to ensure that by the 3rd of January, West Ham have probably, have probably lost ground mm. in a way that Man City or Chelsea or Liverpool won't have done. That it, it doesn't happen. We don't get smaller teams challenging for the title particularly anymore. To be honest, we don't get anyone apart from Manchester City challenging for the title. But the, the way that it's structured... It precludes that happening. And I think that is the biggest structural difference. And to be honest, again, it's a relatively simple thing to solve. You say, let's take out the middle game. We'll play on Boxing Day. We'll play on New Year's weekend. 
Um, it might actually be that this year is not a great example because of the the date, the days that things have fallen on. If Boxing Day is a Wednesday and New Year's Day is a Tuesday, then it makes it a bit more complex. What do you do with the with the weekend in the middle? Um, but maybe if you just spread it out, you say, right, we'll play Wednesday, Saturday, we'll play on the second rather than the first, Wednesday, make sure everyone gets a three-day gap. That's all Klopp ever says is, I, I just want a three-day gap. I don't want to have 48 hours. And I think that's... That that's not that unreasonable. Yeah, that's right. But so it, 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 if it's designed to break, or if it's designed to make or break a campaign, it is much more likely to break those clubs with with less strength in depth. Which is, you know, I was saying, what a great Christmas Manchester City have had. Well, I think we could probably see that coming on the on the back of the resources they've got available to them. Final thing on the, the three slash five subs thing, which doesn't get brought up as often as it should do. And the reason why I perhaps feel quite as strongly as I do, the five subs thing, it's a real pain in the ass for football commentators. <laughs> and and that oh, really it, it, is the detail that we need to drill down into. But do you, do you, you think you won't that... find a football commentator who is in favour of five subs? Do you it's think, a lot well, more work for us and it throws your notes into complete and utter chaos from about the 60th minute of the game onwards. And there's no question that it's not, it's not good for the spectacle having that many changes. That is absolutely true. That is one, one thing where commentators are correct is that it's not, it does interrupt the rhythm of the game quite a lot. And it, I think, I is it right that in Germany there's three substitution breaks in the Leeds with five subs? You can only do it at set times. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, right. That's yeah. always been, yeah, you can't, you, you have to, you can, aside from changes you make at half time, you can only make changes three times in a game. But yeah. that actually adds to the chaos because you know, those, those situations where maybe both teams bring on, bring on a substitution at the same time, they might bring on two at the same time. Suddenly you've got four players coming at the same time. And all joking aside, I, I do genuinely believe that it adds to greater incoherence of yeah. games in the final, certainly in the final 20 minutes. And I'll give you one example. It was from a French game where the there was a team i want to say trois were winning 1-0 at marseille and they had one sub left to make and they made it having just conceded a free kick in the 95th minute of the game inside their own half they fiddled around they made the substitution the player they bought on was then the player who made the mistake that led to the late, late equalising goal. And it's almost as though I've got five subs to make, I'm going to make them. But the more off, the more changes you make, the, the more incoherent it seems as though the plan becomes. And it, it adds to a level of chaos, which may for some be, well, that's, that's brilliant. But I think it leads to, to managers making sort of certain decisions they don't necessarily need to. The, the, the other two aspects of this that I think... W- are worth mentioning at least, I can't necessarily offer any solutions, is why, in relation to five subs, was it only controversial in England? Why was it that every other league looked at it and thought, yeah, that makes sense, let's do it? Mm-hmm. And it was only in England that that, that the, the non-elites looked at the elite and thought, no, you're not having it all your own way. Because of the because voting the gap, structure. The gap, yeah. and, and the gap and, between the two. Yeah, between, partly, the, partly between because of six the, and yeah. 14, and that's how you vote. Yeah. That's why. That yeah, that um, suggests to me a structural problem, and and it's kind of related to the second thing, which is, I think again, everybody acts in their own self interest. Someone said to me a little while ago that if you're involved in sport and you're not being self interested, you are doing it wrong. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. But we shouldn't necessarily assume that the self interest of one group is is correct. So yeah, Klopp and Rangnick and Tuchel are all being incredibly self interested obviously that doesn't mean a that they're wrong and b it doesn't mean that the people who are saying no to them are not acting out of self-interest that's a really obvious point to make and it's a point i've made a million times but the the protecting of tradition is not being done because it's a, a tradition it's being done because the people who are advocating it feel that it's in their in their interests. It's because if it if it didn't make money or if it wasn't a, a particularly important point of the schedule for the Premier League, the, the, the fact that it's a tradition would not matter at all. They, they are happy, as we have seen with three o'clock kickoffs on a Saturday, to do a, to do away with the bits of tradition that they don't really care about. Yeah. yeah, and and the tradition is to play Boxing Day and to play New Year's Day. I, I don't think anybody really feels like the the tradition is to play Boxing Day and then forty eight hours later. 
But we're always right. If, if it's a weekend, that's that's when you have the problem. That's yeah, why, I mean, but that's why it exists. That's that's where it comes from. Is that there was the tradition was Boxing Day and New Year's Day, and quite often because of the nature of the Gregorian calendar, the um, though that there's a weekend in between, yeah. and they were clearly. I, I, I have no idea if this was the the thinking, but my guess is that the football lead in the 1930s or whatever were were left with a bit of a problem. Like, what what do we do? Do we do we just keep on playing constantly? And they thought yes, and that was when. Clubs were reliant on gate receipts for their money and, you know, cramming in more games made more sense. It's why American sports teams play so many games, apart from the, in, the, in the NFL, because how are you going to make money? You make money by putting people in the stadium, so let's play more matches. Yeah. That's, that's the thinking there. So th- there was a, this sort of structural issue of people wanted Boxing Day football, people wanted New Year's Day football. It was a chance to, to make money from filling the stadiums. I guess that, to an extent, the reason they had the old home and away structure was so that everyone got to benefit that it wasn't that half the teams got a full stadium on Boxing Day and, every, and the other half the teams didn't when that when that yeah. those great receipts mattered. So, in, yeah, this year, is not a, this year it would have been really easy to say, look, we're playing on the weekends. That's what we're doing. It's just a normal time of year. But then the solution to that, Rory, is to say, well, if the calendar falls that you're effectively requiring teams to play three times in seven slash eight days, then the solution to that is to make sure that they haven't already played yes, six exactly. or seven t- six or seven times that month. Did we not but, have a did we not have two midweek games in December before Christmas? Yes. Yeah. So they, that that one 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 there was the the first Amazon slate and the second was the yeah. BT slate. Yeah. And that's and so find a different window for that. Don't don't have a don't look at the calendar. Go sorry guys. You know, Boxing Day is in the middle of the week. You know, we're going to have to play Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday. But also, we're going to cram in two midweek fixtures earlier on in December. Oh, and, and you've got to finish up your Champions League campaign. Yeah. And you've got to play the quarterfinal of the League Cup. And, and maybe it is worth discussing what Ralph Ranick said about that. Because I think in amongst all the conversation about tradition, that is starting to feel increasingly like an acronym that we can do away with. If you want to have the League Cup, or if there is a firm belief that we need a secondary cup competition, something that the rest of the elite leagues in Europe have long since uh, decided isn't a requirement, then you can't have games in that competition being played in December and January, either side of crazy period. The, the, the thing with fixture congestion in general across different competitions, that is one of the really organic, natural and important ways in which the playing field is levelled. So I don't have any sympathy at all with the big clubs saying, oh, we've got Champions League games to think about. That, that's the point. That's a natural corrective within football. That The more you succeed, the more games you have to play. That's what gives the smaller teams a chance. They, the bigger clubs with the bigger squads have to, have to play more games, which means they're more tired, which reduces the gap. So I think from that point of view, yeah, the fact that December is tough if you're in the Champions League is good because it's a ch- that would be where Sean Dyche might have a point. If he said, look... The, the four teams in the Champions League or the seven teams in Europe are going to have to play not only six league games, but th- potentially three European ties and possibly a Carling Cup quarterfinal. That that means that I they... Called, I think it's called the Worthington Cup. It's called the Rumbelows. <laughs> the, that means that they have that extra workload, which means that the, the smaller teams who don't have that workload have more rest and therefore have more chance. L- l- let's look at Arsenal. Uh, who've not got any European commitments and therefore are able to kind of put out a team much more reliably and have built a real head of steam over the season. The, and that's really that's really important. Arsenal obviously are not a small club, but that's in, that's an important corrective. I think the issue is that there is a, an artificial corrective being implemented, as Steve says, by by overwhelming December with fixtures as a whole, in a way that maybe just needs to be a bit, bit more nuanced. So if you look at the the calendar, what f- five years out of seven. It will say Boxing Day is a weekday and New Year's Day is a weekday, which means there will be a weekend in between when we have to play. In which case, what we're going to do is we're going to remove one or two of the fixtures from December. And to be honest, maybe you just shove them into January because you look from where we are now, you've got a round, you've got an FA Cup round in which none of the Premier League teams will put out a full strength team. You've then got a Premier League game, maybe two Premier League games in a row, then another round of the FA Cup. You could probably have an FA Cup midweek slate in January fairly easily mm. you could also do you mean a Premier ma- League slate midweek in January yeah a Premier League yeah. slate midweek in January the fairly easily and that would be at least one of those fixtures pushed aside because they're all going to get 
a week's break. Then you've got the the winter break anyway, in at the start of end of January, start of February. Although I think that this year, because of COVID, that might go. But they're, they're ordinary a couple of weeks after the cup. They're not going to play their full strength teams in the FA Cup. Not a chance. Even City won't play their full strength team in the FA Cup. So you kind of have natural breaks in January and the start of February that you don't have in December. And I think that is the issue that you need those natural correctives to level the playing field. You don't need to then rid the schedule to try and make it happen more. And, and, and I think, you know, anyone who works in football recognises that because you have this crazy autumn and then actually things ease off a bit in January and February. If you cover football regularly, you, you sort of feel like you take a, a bit of a deep breath in the new year because suddenly the games aren't coming as thick and fast as they were because the Champions League doesn't ramp up again until March. And, and then you help to ease again this, this sort of how things benefit the teams with the greater strength in depth, which has been a bit of a running theme. And it ties in with, with the League Cup because if, if you're going to keep the League Cup, it should be an opportunity for a club, a team to win a trophy who don't necessarily stand a chance in, in either the the Premier League or or the FA Cup. But if you look at the run of League Cup winners over the course of the last couple of decades, you go back to Middlesbrough winning it in, in 2004. Other than Swansea in 2013, the, the League Cup, the Milk, the Rumbelows, the Littlewoods, whatever you want to call it, has been won by a Champions League team. Because it's easy to do so because there aren't because that many of, games. But I know of, there are too many still. <laughs> because they have the resources to get themselves through the early rounds and then when they need to do so quarterfinals, the ridiculous two-legged semi-final, they, get, they, they have got the greater chance to get through it. What's the point in having a competition which just enables the big teams to keep cashing in on their trophy? Well, I, I think that with, with the Cups as a whole, there is a real chance for, for much more substantive change in a way that would really help. And it's a shame that nobody in English football seems to be particularly willing to have those conversations. So I think my friend Neil from the Anfield Rap has um has quite for quite a long time advocated the idea that there should be an FA Cup finals week where the last three rounds of the FA Cup are mm. played at the end of the season yeah. after the end of the Premier League which means you suddenly takes all of those three final semi-final quarterfinals those three weekends out of the equation you play the quarterfinals on a Saturday you play the semi-finals on a Wednesday and you play the, the the final itself on on the Sunday and it means that you get this kind of focal point around the FA Cup or you could do you, you know could, what the League Cup could do that as well at the end yeah. of February like you could just just do it in in, in a week yeah quarterfinal semi-final and, and final. or you could um you could take January you could say right we're gonna have this mad December or mad, I think you can reduce the madness of December. But then you could say, actually, do you know what? The New Year's Day game is going to be the, F- the FA Cup third round. And we're then going to play another three rounds of the FA Cup plus three rounds of the of the, the League Cup all in January. And that would give teams the chance to say, look, so, to some teams, we have to accept it, the Cups aren't very important. So that would give th- those teams the chance to say, actually, do you know what? We are taking a break from League action for a month. Having a hiatus is a good thing. Um, we are going to have, we are, we're going to play our reserves or we're going to play, you know, the squad players or whatever. And you just turn, you turn the focus completely away from the lead. You, there are, that might not work. That having a finals week might not work. There might be problems with it. But those are the sorts of conversations that, that the leads and the organisations need to be having because there are ways around this issue. It's just that the problem is that if you say, well, we want to find a way around this issue, but we don't want to change anything about ourselves, mm. then nothing will ever happen. You've just used the phrase there, for some clubs, the cups aren't that important. The problem is, those are the clubs that continuously win them. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And I think that the, the, the problem, well, in fact, the but problem is... For whom that, you, that success is the least valuable, Yeah, that's they, the issue. they, that, they still yeah. attain it. And, that it's, and, that, it's the, and that's my objection to the way that the League Cup is. Or, and if you took the League Cup, League Cup out, it would incentivise even more the FA Cup for the smaller clubs because they, their resources wouldn't have been broken earlier on in the season. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I think the problem is, that, as you say, that it, it's come to, both have come to just highlight in a really kind of depressing way that the, resor- the resource gap that the big teams have. It would be, 
nice to think that some of the mid-table teams who'll be safe would, would have a proper yeah. crack at the FA Cup. Um, and I think, you know, Le- Leicester winning it, they're not a mid-table yeah. team, Leicester, but Leicester winning it last year was, was really important for the FA Cup. It would have been brilliant if West Ham had won the League Cup this year after beating mm. Man City, that they would have been the perfect team to win the League Cup. Does that restores its meaning? The If Leeds won the FA Cup, that would be, and it's that that would probably trump this will sound controversial, but Leeds winning the FA Cup would be almost a more meaningful thing than Man City winning the league because what it would mean to that fan base. And I think it's a shame that those tournaments can't be tweaked to in, A, to increase and B, to incentivise that happening. And, and just to finish where we started is that if you're trying to incentivise the, the, the drama and the passion and, and, and everything that's sold over the Christmas period is being so important, but at the end of it, you have made the competitive element that that element that sells that league more than any other redundant because Manchester City have just come out of it 10 points clear then aren't you completely undermining your own selling point you are ruining enough of the teams but not all of the teams and the one that can survive it the best has now basically got enough of a lead to suggest that the rest of the Premier League season might not be as entertaining as it would have been had you had over the course of the last month a little bit more of a and as you look at the last few seasons where we've seen that that record for number of games won in a row toppled pretty much every year since since Chelsea in 20 whatever it was 2017 2016 27 maybe 2017 teams are putting ridiculous winning streaks together and they're generally doing it between November and, and February yeah. which means that we've not apart from 2019 when when City beat Liverpool by point in what was the least dramatic title race of all time given that they just won all of their games um that title was effectively decided at the Etihad I think on January the 3rd because that was the last time anyone dropped any points um and and they know it they know it that's the thing yeah the problem is you're not getting title races because one team goes clear it generally is City but it has previously been Liverpool or Chelsea one team goes clear over Christmas and the new year and that's it and that actually is not in the Premier League's interests. Exactly. That's exactly exactly my point. There we go. We are singing from the same hymn sheet. Uh, which what a is way a to start thing. the year. Hurrah! And we got there eventually. Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Stephen and Rory and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. I was particularly pleased that twice in that, uh, that the main body of that conversation, we mentioned the French club Trois. Mm. Now, I know it's written differently, but wouldn't it have been nice if we had just found a third, a third mention of Trois? Because I was sitting on that. Somebody's going to mention it again, just so that I could interject. In the end, I've done it anyway. But still, I want you to know that I was ready there for that wordplay. He was just desperate for a Trois hat-trick. I think the world can probably live without that content, to be honest. What, without the Troisome? Yeah, without the, the Troisome, yeah. Without you making a Trois of yourself. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the fastest fade-out in the history of set-piece menus.